Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Nicola Matthews, also known as the Countess of Coco, who is the UK's marketing director for Tony's Chocolate Only, a chocolate brand that's on a mission to change the cocoa industry. So Nicola, huge, huge welcomes to the podcast. So what, I, what I'd love to hear first is, I, it's a brand which interestingly, um, in fact, more or less until recently, had a no mass media policy. And it's one of those brands that I discovered by accident, and I can't quite remember how, but I've been a you know fairly loyal devotee for some time. Um, I, I've got a vague idea, it may have been that you're distributed in Gusto boxes, and I might have bought a, um, a bar um, as an extra in a Gusto box. But I, I still can't fully remember how it was that I first discovered the brand. So t- tell me the history of the brand, because although it's Dutch, Tony is actually, I think, Tun, um, but Tun is the Dutch for Tony. Uh, so they decided to call it, and Tun's Chocolonely wouldn't have rhymed after all. And, and why, by the way, Chocolonely? I mean, I, I've got to ask that question. The name is, uh, you know, gloriously counterintuitive. Um, I, I'd just love to know the, the, the first history of the, the brand and the, the early beginnings. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, it's important to kind of say that we are not a chocolate company. We are an impact company. Uh, So there's quite an important distinction there, an impact company that makes chocolate rather than a chocolate company that makes impact. We only exist to achieve our mission, which is 100% slave-free chocolate. Um, And not just our own chocolate, but all chocolate worldwide. And, you know, most chocolate lovers will have no idea that there is this bitter truth to the chocolate industry. 1.56 million children working illegally and at least 30,000 instances of modern slavery on cocoa farms in West Africa. And that's where 60 percent of the world's cocoa comes from. So the root cause of that is poverty. Millions of farmers living way below the poverty line because ultimately the biggest chocolate companies don't pay enough for their cocoa. So those farmers are living way below the poverty line and have no choice but to use their children or other people's children to farm their cocoa and and make their income. So back in 2001, um, actually the CEOs and leaders of these biggest chocolate companies 
did sign something called the Harkin Engel Protocol to and pledged to eradicate the worst forms of illegal child labour from their supply chains. They said they would do that by 2005, but it was a self-binding agreement uh, versus being legislation. And then in 2005, uh, when that first kind of deadline was, was up, a team of Dutch journalists wanted to investigate whether any change had actually happened. And they did that as part of a, a documentary that they were making. And of course, they found nothing had changed. The problem was still as, as bad as ever. But also that the big chocolate companies had no interest in talking about it or working together with them to improve the situation because they actually called them and tried to, to speak to them as part of this, this documentary. So... The journalists decided to take matters into their own hands. They wanted to shed light on this issue, um, and they did that through a series of PR stunts, um, one of which was making the world's first slave-free chocolate bar, which back then just meant fair trade. Um, and they decided to sell them when Charlie and the Chocolate Factory was released in cinemas. Um, and they called it Tony's Chocolonely. Like you said, Turn is the, the Dutch name for Tony. And Chocolonely because they really felt like this was their lonely fight against inequality in the chocolate industry because none of the big chocolate companies wanted to, to work with them on, on it. So they launched our milk chocolate red wrapper bar. Uh, they sold 5,000 of them in two hours in Amsterdam train stations. Um, and Tony's Chocolate Only was born a kind of accidental chocolate brand. Um, and yeah, we're still continuing the fight of those journalists 17 years later. What sort of market share does it have in, in the Netherlands where it first started? So we go, um, we have about 20% market share of tablets in the Netherlands, and that tends to be, we, we switch from number one market share to number two next to Capri's. Um, but yeah, they got to number one market share within, I think, 13 or 14 years. I mean, what's interesting is there's this whole history, funnily enough, of chocolate companies being founded as social enterprises, which is true of Cadbury's. And most of the chocolate brands in the UK, Roundtree's, Terry's and Cadbury's, uh, were all Quaker creations. And they originally started in the hot chocolate, the, the drinking chocolate business rather than the solids business. And it was very, I think, very largely driven by having uh, a pleasurable source of enjoyment, which was non-alcoholic. Quite a lot of Quakers don't drink. I'm fairly sure that Bourneville, I don't think, had any pubs. Um, and uh, you know, if you ever go to a Quaker community, there won't be a pub there. And they were generally um, uh, highly abstemious. But funnily, funnily enough, this is this is actually, in a sense, a continuation um, of a kind of early 19th century tradition of chocolate being uh, sold as a sort of pro-social enterprise. But then from the Netherlands, their next country they launched in was fairly bravely the United States. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. 2017, we launched in uh, the, the US um, and had a team based in Portland. They're now based in, in New York, but that was our second market. So presumably this, this launching in the US was driven by the need to move into a big market because to fulfill your mission, uh, essentially, um, uh, you know, you had to reach as many people as possible. And of course, the sales of the chocolate fun effectively fund the campaign. I mean, what success are you having in the actual campaign itself in that um, uh, presumably all the chocolate is fair trade. It removes the need for child labour by paying adult farmers a fair wage for their cocoa product. Ghana is a particular focus. Is that right? Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. Yeah. Cote d'Ivoire. And what those two countries produce a huge amount of the, the world's cocoa crop. And 
as you said, the, the child labour isn't done for any particular, you know, sometimes child labour is used simply because children are small and there are certain jobs they can do. It simply is an economic problem. Is that right? Yeah, the, like I said, the crux of it is poverty. Um, these farmers own, you know, about a hectare of land on average each. That is the amount of land that they have to make the income for their family. And if they are paid the bare minimum, um, they cannot earn a living income. But it doesn't all just come down to price. Like we have five sourcing principles. We say that you have to have 100% traceability in your supply chain. You have to pay the living income reference price. You have to work with and support to professionalize um, farmer cooperatives, work with them for the, the long term, so at least five years, and support farmers to improve quality and productivity and, and optimize their yields. So we have proven that those five sourcing principles work um, in the cocoa farms that or the cooperatives that we have worked with for at least five years. The prevalence rate of child labor goes down from almost one in two um, children in cocoa growing communities working in child labor to 3.9%. So from 46.5 to 3.9%. So we are proving that these five sourcing principles work. And now we just need the rest of the industry to adopt them. And it's such a delicate ecosystem. You can't just pay a higher price. You can't just have traceability. You have to have all of it throughout your entire supply chain. And unfortunately, none of the big chocolate companies are doing all of that throughout their entire supply chain yet. So that's why we haven't seen any improvements in the, the issue. So, so one of the big things is not just the price you pay, it's actually working with the farmers and with the cooperatives to improve agricultural me um, uh, approaches that basically increase yields, is that right? Yeah. It's very interesting because I was talking to one development agency um, and one of the things they said that worries them about um, Africa is actually there's this growing trend towards urbanization. And their argument is that to a large extent, the financial salvation of Africa will really come through agri-tech, you know, effectively, you know, just, uh, you know, massive improvements in innovation in um, growing techniques that can hugely increase productivity. And you, what sort of productivity improvements can you actually attain if you actually work closely with these people? So in part of the living income reference price model that we have, um, farmers need to grow about um, 800 tonnes per hectare of cocoa on their, their farms. We are seeing more and more farmers get towards that, that level. So moving up from five to six to 700 tonnes um, and through yeah, agroforestry practices that, that we support them with on the ground. Now, interestingly, you've had this no paid media policy from the off which th there's a slight caveat to that which is you will use paid media to campaign for your uh, for your ultimate uh, goal but you won't use paid media historically or you didn't until this year to actually promote the product how did you manage i mean you have got brilliant packaging design i have to really credit you on that i don't know who did that but the packaging design is ingenious in many ways because it conveys kind of artisan quality, but in a sort of modern, non-stereotypical way. Um, but how did you manage to achieve the levels of distribution you gained so quickly without using any bought media? It must have been a, a little bit of an uphill challenge. Is that fair? Particularly in the US. Yeah, you know, so in the Netherlands, 
the Tony Strocoloni brand grew to be number one market share in, in 14, 15 years. And that was solely from the PR awareness driven by the documentary and all these original stunts from, from the journalists. And yes, like you said, the standout visibility, the branding and the whole kind of Tony Strocoloni brand is the genius of Clink, who is our creative director. And he's he was the first person to draw the, the red bar. He was a friend of the journalists at the time. Um, and now he's been in-house with us for, for a number of years. Um, and word of mouth. Uh, there's something about this product and this brand that makes people want to tell other people about it and share it. Um, so we followed that same strategy in the UK. You know, we absolutely benefited from the fact that there was already a bit of buzz and hype about this chocolate brand in the Netherlands. We bided our time. You know, a couple of the retailers came to us way before we were ready to launch in the UK. So when we were here and ready, they were, you know, very excited that we were finally launching. So we did have a fast start, but we've made really deliberate distribution choices, working with key independent stores that we call image accounts first. So that was, you know, building really strong displays and, and giving everyone in the feeling, the feeling that we were everywhere in London, because you'd see us in a coffee shop and a deli, as well as, a, you know, your local independent store. And then we went to premium grocery, um, so Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado. And we really um, stuck with that for the first couple of years and wanted to make that work really, really well for us. And now we're starting to, we launched to Tesco last September, so now we're starting to go to more mass market grocery. But we are trying to educate shoppers that chocolate shouldn't be cheap. So building the distribution in this way has been has been really key. And I think distribution can actually act as a marketing channel when it's it's done well. I, 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 it's funny you say that because I agree with you there. And I think the sequencing you chose, which was independent retailers first, then premium retail, then moving to mass retail. There was probably a similar parallel, actually. I, um, you're pretty too young to remember this, but San Pellegrino. Uh, you know, famously an Italian water brand, also true of Peroni beer, actually. The first place you encountered them in the 1980s was in Pizza Express. Um, there was another beer called Rolling Rock, which would, for, for its first few years, would only be sold in kind of explicitly American-themed outlets. And that business of using distribution as a form of marketing, I think, is an absolutely ingenious insight, that where you first encounter something, essentially, you unconsciously i think make inferences about the product and the brand from exactly the places it's sold yeah. and so what you're doing by deliberately sequencing that independent places first where also you you quite often i mean gusto is an interesting partnership you know where uh, you can you know quite often add a bar of tony's chocolate only uh, to, to your gusto order again those are really really interesting places because you encounter it in places where you're not immediately surrounded by other competitors and so it gains just that extra bit of salience by dint of being unusually distributed. So you went for coffee shops in particular. Yeah, coffee shops, delis, independents. And like you said, the, the you know distribution could be a marketing channel, but our product really is our number one marketing tool. I think a lot of people in FNCG um, forget that now. You know, we use every inch of it. Like you said, the bright, colourful wrapping, the weight of the bars, they're, they're much bigger than most other chocolate bars. The layer of gold foil when you've taken off the paper wrapper and then the unusual kind of shape of the, the bar itself is well, unequally there's a lovely there's a lovely little easter egg in that which is that yeah. the bar is deliberately in, unequally uh, divided in other words it's not a series of identical squares it's deliberately unequally divided as as a message which is if i'm right exactly. it, a message about inequality so the bar is uh, literally a physical manifestation of the problem in the chocolate industry the profits aren't shared equally and therefore our bars can't be shared equally 
Perfect. Uh, very, very nice. It's one of those things a bit like the little arrow hidden in the FedEx logo, which mm-hmm. is once you've heard that, you can't unsee it. I think that's yeah. that's really rather tremendous. And people love to um, know that little fact and then tell somebody else. It's a real aha moment because it's a point of... Um, so it's our number one complaint that we get on, on a cardo. So people say they love the chocolate, but they wish, um, you know, they could share it equally or they didn't have to fight over the big Tony's piece or something. But once they understand why, they then want to go and tell other people and that fuels the, the word of mouth. Ah, ingenious. Yeah. So, so in other words, the cake is not evenly divided and it's therefore completely wrong to pretend that it is. Um, there was a wonderful case also where I think you had a an advent calendar in the UK where one of the doors had no chocolate behind it. Again, making a very similar message. And exactly. You, you you did come up against a sort of a, a, a fairly large sort of backlash on Mum's Net or something. I think as a result of that. But again, when you explained the reasoning, did people accept it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I had no idea that English people would get so distressed by there being one uh, chocolate missing in their advent calendar. But there wasn't one missing. They got two the, the next day. But it was just that kind of breaking the the norm of what you expect. Um, but actually, and we got thousands of messages and emails and phone calls kind of that that day and that week. But I'd say, we, you know, we went back to every single one of them. We spoke to everybody um, and we think kind of 95 percent of people, once we explained why we've done it, were, you know, even bigger fans than, than they were before. And that's again, actually, I mean, funnily enough, little uh, instances like that are perfect because your original strategy and the reason you didn't use mass media is you wanted to build a personal relationship with customers or a one to one relationship with customers uh, rather than just being kind of distant remote brand. But I mean, so um, those conversations have a a huge, okay, they're costly in terms of eyeballs, but they do have a huge value if you can engineer exactly that kind of thing. Now, interestingly, you're your recent consumer campaign is fantastically telling people to eat less chocolate. Is that right? Yeah, I think you're referring to um, a social media post we did in, in January. Ah. So, yeah, we had a, a picture of our red bar and a statement that said, I'm bad for your health, um, which is quite surprising, I guess, for people to hear from a, from a chocolate company. But that was basically to show our support for sugar tax legislation in the Netherlands. Um, we absolutely don't shy away from the fact that our product is unhealthy. Um, but like anything, it can be enjoyed as part of a, a balanced diet and it should be a treat and a luxury. And we want to encourage people to, to trade up to products that don't exploit cocoa farmers, perhaps enjoy a little less, better quality chocolate um, that pays people fairly. This is really interesting. I mean, you, you came from Diageo, I think, is that right? You were in Diageo mm-hmm. before you joined Tony's Chocolate Only. And I think there's something very interesting, which is what you might call the marketing component of environmentalism, which is there isn't necessarily a conflict between marketing and uh, environmentalism. Uh, the assumption is that marketing always wants people to consume more. But I think I was told by the marketing director of Diageo their strategy, very similar, I suppose, alcoholic drink and chocolate, is we don't want people to drink more. We want people to drink less of better. Yeah. And I suppose that would be the same approach you, you, you're adopting. In the, you know, if you think about it, you know, one fairly good solution, uh, environmental solution, is if, if you actually get people to buy fewer but higher quality goods. It would apply with clothing, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, fast fashion is an environmental nightmare. You might argue, I think I would argue, in fact, that, you know, premium branded clothing, by the way, for which there is a second hand market, 
you know, there are, you know, there are 25 year old Fendi bags still being mm-hmm. traded on eBay. Those things don't end up in landfill. And there's a very, very interesting argument around this, which is a large part, I think, of inv- it would apply also to travel. You know, I don't think we can, I, I think to me personally, I think there are huge benefits to the population being reasonably well traveled. But if you can get people to travel less frequently, but to stay for longer, for example, you can actually enjoy an improvement in, you know, an ongoing and continuous improvement in people's quality of life without necessarily having a corresponding increase in emissions or uh, carbon emissions or general um, uh, waste and uh, consumption. So I think I, th- I think that because I always remember Diageo saying that, and I always remember thinking, uh, you know, it's actually that that they would say is their strategy for the whole of Diageo. You know, we wanted, in other words, the world the world not to become more boozy but more discerning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy your time at Diageo? I would have said it was a fantastic place to have. Uh, it was your first job after Manchester Business School, is that right? Yeah, I joined their graduate scheme, uh, their sales and, and marketing kind of commercial scheme, and it was the best possible place to start your career. The, their investment into people and training, yeah. um, just the access to the brains behind those incredible brands. Um, yeah, you couldn't have asked for a better start. And actually, the drinks industry, I think, it's a bit like, you know, I spent a lot of my time when I first started working in advertising, working on American Express, which in direct marketing was brilliant because it had everything. It had membership, it had member get member, uh, you know, uh, it had acquisition, it had retention, it had loyalty. You know, there, there was a little bit of everything there and you got to understand the whole ecosystem. And I've always, I was talking to someone just last night, actually, who was in a specialist drinks company. And the unbelievable kind of ecosystem that lies behind the drinks category is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? It's, it's, it's incredibly complicated. Um, uh, there are utterly bizarre kind of fashions. Um, one of the most fascinating things I discovered is that Fever Tree make a lot of money selling ginger beer in the United States because the mule is still, I think, the second or third most popular cocktail. Mm-hmm. But interestingly, drinks companies never like promoting the mule as a drink simply because they think of it as a 1950s old fashioned drink. And so Fever Tree, by actually going in and promoting the ginger beer, were able to actually almost clean up just because of the reluctance of, of drinks companies to promote a drink, even though it was popular, which they thought was slightly dated. There was, I don't know if you, you probably remember this from Diageo, the, the mule was typically drunk in a kind of metal container and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, it always strikes me as just, I, I always think that, that the, um, uh, again, there are certain marketing categories where you'll just learn much, much faster because, mm. um, you know, they're, they're one of those things where every type of problem, every type of complexity um, is kind of enshrined in, in, in the whole business. And chocolate, chocolate in, in, in a way must be another one, because again, I suppose you, you will always come up against this slight ethical thing, which is that a large part of chocolate is sold as an impulse purchase next to the till. I don't know how you cope with, do you ever get attacked for using pester power, for example? No, we absolutely don't market our product to children. Um, it's, it's something very deliberate. Um, we don't think that, that that's that's the right thing to do. So um, yeah, that you'll never see any of our marketing trying to encourage kids to, to ask their parents for it, for instance. Um, and you know, even when we do sampling and, and big campaigns and things, we, we don't give away big bars of chocolate to, to children. 
And interestingly, you have started launching the smaller bars in the UK. That was probably what about a year and a half ago, was it? The, the... We actually launched them at the same the same time. Oh, so uh, oh just, right, okay. Yeah, but the big bars are the the one that everybody wants to to enjoy. So there's the small bars you'll see more in um, yeah impulse coffee shops um, and yeah the food to go sections. And and your if I'm right, your your role encompasses innovation as well as marketing. Is that right? Yeah, we have a product team based in, in the Netherlands, um, what we call our home base. So they're the, the geniuses coming up with the, the new product pipelines that I'm in charge of. You know, similar to my last role at Diageo, kind of commercializing that innovation and making sure that it's fit for purpose for the, for the UK. And so I suppose, I mean, some of the, um, com- the flavor combinations and the different types of chocolate. Interestingly, I'm not sure you've done a nut-based one yet. Is that right? You haven't done a... Is there a reason for that? To do with... Oh, we've got loads of nut bars. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm yeah. Being... I, I, I know there's sea salt and caramel. Um, that's the number one. There's yep. a very, there's a very, there's a, that, that's actually your top seller, is it interesting? It is, yeah. That's actually 20% of global Tony's revenue, that one bar. That's 20%. Interestingly, I, I, uh, you sent me a very generously a sample, which was the dark chocolate and lemon, which mm-hmm. was a very, very interesting combination. Um, I thought that was, that, that was pretty inventive. In terms of when you innovate, do you suddenly run into new supply chain problems, which is, you know, suddenly you've got to introduce an ingredient and you discover there are other ingredients which are similarly problematic to cocoa, or has that not arisen yet? We have had that actually with our, our nut bars. So, for instance, we have a milk hazelnut or a dark almond sea salt. Um, and a good few years ago now, we um, discovered that there was potentially risks of, of illegal labour happening where we were getting the hazelnuts from in Turkey. Um, and, and we exist to change the, the, the cocoa industry. So we are really, really detailed in our sourcing of cocoa. All of our sugar is fair trade and all of the inclusions, which make up a much smaller part of, of the bar, we do our due diligence and, and as much as possible, try and ensure they come from areas where there's there's no risk of that. Um, but when we think there might be, yes, we're ha- we kind of switch production or switch our procurement um, because we don't have the resources to go and also tackle that problem. Um, so, yes, we switched our hazelnut sourcing to Spain. By the way, where else does cocoa appear? Obviously, it's a fundamental ingredient in chocolate. Uh, is it also, I mean, it, there is obviously it, it's a drink, but that's much, much less common than it used to be. Are there other effectively buyers of cocoa other than the chocolate industry? Or is it dominated pretty much by It's mostly food and drink, yes. Yeah, snacks, lots of snack bars would have a small amount of cocoa small in them or, or chocolate milk, for instance. And, and that's actually how we're making more impact. So we bought last year about 8,000 tonnes of cocoa from, from Ghana and Ivory Coast. But we are recruiting mission allies. So those who join our what we call Tony's Open Chain and adopt our five sourcing principles, and we will facilitate them to adopt that. So um, Aldi joined last year and have made um, a Choco Changer bar and Easter egg. The uh, Albert Hein in the Netherlands, the biggest retailer there, now makes all of their private label cocoa, um, private label chocolate brands, according to our five sourcing principles. And there is a chocolate milk brand in Germany as well. And those mission allies added... 33% more cocoa on top of the Tony's cocoa being bought from West Africa, according to our sourcing principles. So that's how we're growing the impact. I mean, those five principles, all credit to the journalists for really doing their research, because I think one of the things that bedevils purpose-led brands is that sometimes they become fixated on one thing only, which on its own is not sufficient to solve the problem. And so, yeah, I mean, as you, you've obviously spotted, fair trade is, yes, obviously part of the solution, paying a fair price. But actually, there are four other things you need to do 
in order to ultimately solve the problem in an enduring way. Yeah. And I think, um, did, did that emerge from their journalistic research? Or... To be honest, that actually, those five principles have really been in place since Heikian Beltman, our, our current CEO, came in in 2012. Yeah. So before that, you know, the journalists were not setting out to create a business. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So they uh, were growing it slowly and steadily, but Henk Jan's really the one who, who came in and really wanted to scale the impact we make in West Africa. And he's the one that started implementing those five sourcing principles. And it, it's really grown from there. And now we're finally getting the real proof points after uh, a long period of time working with some of our original cocoa cooperative farming partners. Um, interestingly, I'm, I'm amazed to see how much we consume. So on average, I've just read, we consume three bars of chocolate per person per week in the UK. Yeah. Um, that strikes me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished by how high that is actually yeah i think um, it equates to something like 50 of our big bars a year which i'm a chocoholic and even i don't eat that much so there must be some people out there enjoying it even more i was going to say um, that that really astonished me so that partly explains your idea exactly as you said that um, you want people to enjoy responsibly to use that that common phrase mm -hmm. you you must occasionally get this kind of backlash which is yes you're doing a very you're you're in the service of a very good cause but you are selling an a, you know an obesogenic product um and, and you'd respond to that effectively by saying no we think this is an acceptable thing to enjoy um in moderation as a treat yeah and absolutely the, the the chocolate industry is a hundred billion dollars worldwide so people yeah. are eating a lot of it and we want to you know, we don't want people to eat more, but we would love to them to trade up from the brands that are uh, not paying farmers a fair price or even better campaign with their favorite chocolate brands to ask them to pay a higher price and to, to adopt our five sourcing principles so that we can really change the, the broken um, industry at the start of the, the supply chain. But we're very honest and transparent and upfront about the fact that, yes, it's not a, a healthy product. 
I mean, you must run foul then of some of the more recent legislation on being able to show in advertising. I mean, some of that advertising, some of that legislation strikes me as nonsensical. So you can't show, I've got a vague memory, it might have been Gusto or HelloFresh, you can't show, you know, a pat of butter in the photograph, even though most normal people don't eat butter in isolation. I'm sure there are people who mm -hmm. do. Do you, do you think that legislation was fundamentally a bit silly in the sense that um, the, uh, as part of a balanced diet, we will consume some things. I mean, obviously, we'll use cooking oil to some degree. Um, we, you know, we'll use butter. Uh, cheese, for example, comes into a hugely problematic category. Now, broadly speaking, people don't eat cheese in isolation. Um, well, actually, that does happen. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably guilty of that occasionally. But you, do you, do you, have you ever run head to head against that? That essentially, you know, I worry a little bit about this because these things are very complicated. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things that that really annoys me is when you go to a party and people are too snobby to serve coke. Okay, I mean the drink, not the drug, just to be clear. Um, in that, as someone explained to me, um, uh, uh, someone, two people have explained to me actually. One of whom was a recovering alcoholic. Uh, the other one simply doesn't drink. Okay, and they said, actually, without Diet Coke, you know, uh, for a non-drinker, parties are basically intolerable. And if you formally had to give up alcohol for obvious reasons, then not being presented with a reasonable alternative makes life really, really difficult. And similarly, I think the idea of, you know, food patently is something where humans crave variety. And, you know, a, mix, you know, a mixture of highly healthful foods with the occasional treat uh, strike, you know, is almost certainly the natural way in which we prefer to consume food. So do you think that legislation was a bit heavy handed, really? No, I think at the root, the root of that legislation is the child obesity crisis yeah. and, and the obesity crisis in general. And if not showing junk food on on TV or, or on adverts to, to children can in any way help that. I think it's the right thing to do. Um, I'm sure, you know, with everything it get when you get down to the nitty gritty kind of real execution of it for some brands, some of it might feel a bit heavy handed, but if it is achieving what it needs to achieve, then then it's the right thing to, to do. My only suspicion is that there seems to be a really weird conflation between foods that are demonised uh, by the the health lobby and what you might call middle-class snobbery. So one of the things that always bothers me is that you will always have a picture of a burger, which is seen as a slightly lower class food, unless it's served in a gastro pub, of course, with um, uh, sweet potato fries, in which case it's completely acceptable. You never get a picture of a pizza, for example. And there's something there which is a bit, uh, I think about the health lobby, which is a little bit unattractive. I mean, one of the things I would say in defense of the fast food industry is, you know, I'm comparatively wealthy, but when I had two kids and one salary to support a family, even I was pretty grateful for the existence of McDonald's in the sense that you can, when you're on the move, you can feed a family for seventeen ninety-five, whereas if you go to Pizza Express, it's 65 quid. You know, so if it make if it makes a big difference to me, I can imagine that it makes a correspondingly even bigger difference to more cash constrained families. And there is something about this sort of health movement in food which strikes me a, a certain amount of it is really snobbery dressed up as concern. And, and you probably escape being a premium and artisan chocolate bar. You probably escape from that opprobrium. But it's 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 always struck me there's an element of sort of weird 
a sort of strange combination of snobbery and puritanism which sometimes infects i think the health lobby which probably isn't really helpful yeah yeah, I think for me, the, the main concern for the HFSS legislation coming up, and I think the advertising part of it's been, been pushed back, but I think what we're going to see, especially, say, in the chocolate industry, is brands can't show their product, but they can talk about their brand. And unfortunately, this industry is awash with greenwashing and purpose washing. And the big chocolate companies now know, I think, partly because of Tony's Chocolate only being on the scene, that consumers are more aware. Um, 35% now of, of UK consumers know there is slavery in the chocolate industry and what we think that that's growing because of us. So they want to know that what they're buying is, is sourced responsibly. And we're already seeing these chocolate brands putting out um, advertising and, and messaging that says 100% responsibly sourced, sustainably sourced and not featuring their products. So I think, unfortunately, we're going to see um, a lot of big advertising campaigns really focusing on what the consumer believes to be sustainable sourcing. But actually, the reality is that uh, what is actually happening in the supply chain doesn't quite match up to those claims. So it's going to be very hard for consumers to see through it. Um, so I think that's going to be the, the biggest challenge for, for us when that comes in. So... I mean, I can, do have you do you plan for that already? Do you because the, your fear is that as a result of the HSS legislation, what will happen is brands will increasingly advertise the their ethical credentials as attached to a brand, not a product, with the consequence that people will think the problem no longer exists. Yeah. Exactly. But we're not going to change what we're doing um, to tackle that. We might have to get bolder in our messaging and calling them out um, on that and trying to yeah, show consumers what the, what the reality is. Um, but yes, it is something we're already thinking about, but we're, we're not going to be reactive to what they do. We're going to keep sticking to what we're doing. Is, I mean, is there fundamentally a, you know, a flaw in capitalism in that if you have people who are responsible for procurement, and their sole responsibility is effectively to procure a predefined um, uh, ingredient at as low a price as possible. And this probably emerges partly from globalization in some areas. And they have absolutely no concern for the supplier relationship or indeed, in some cases, you know, the sustainability of the supplier relationship. In other words, they just have a sort of short term focus on uh, buying uh, you know, at the moment, at the lowest price. I mean, you could contrast, if you like, Japanese capitalism, which generally, in some ways, was highly indulgent towards suppliers and would engage in very long-term relationships with them to mutual benefit. And in fact, I think we see that in the tea trade in some cases. In the best parts of the tea trade, you will see exactly that kind of relationship, which is we both win. And that something's happened, I don't know, in the last 20 years in the relationship, particularly between very large companies and their suppliers, where the whole thing has simply become predatory and expedient and short termist. I mean, is there a is there a wider problem to be challenged in the way in which companies uh, effectively approach supply? I mean, Roger L. Martin uh, suggested that there was there was a kind of sea change around about the year 2000 where companies which previously allowed their suppliers to get tolerably rich provided the relationship was still to a mutual benefit suddenly uh, essentially became um you know the, the whole thing which was once symbiotic actually became kind of um, antagonistic 
do, do you think that do, do you think in, in other words in, in terms of what you do is there a wider problem in the way people see business that needs yeah. to be addressed Absolutely. And it, it comes from when your number one goal is shareholder value. Yeah, that dictates the entire business model, whereas that isn't our number one goal. We're a B Corp. So we put people and planet, uh, you know, with the same uh, importance as, as profit. We're not a social enterprise. We're not a charity. We are a profit making. Um, we aim to make a profit and be a business model that the big chocolate companies can copy. But when your number one goal and the decisions top down from the top of the company are ultimately all in pursuit of shareholder value that will mean that you are going to try and make as much profit as possible potentially exploiting those at the start of the supply chain as a result so it, absolutely it, it seems to me that shareholder value is just the the bad idea that refuses to die because mm -hmm. um one it's intellectually incoherent because which shareholder what time frame are you talking about it doesn't really make any sense um uh, it was um but the second thing is empirically the pursuit of shareholder value doesn't seem to produce much shareholder value, in fact. Mm -hmm. And that companies, what you may find is that B Corps, bizarrely, I, I don't know if you've read the book Obliquity by John Kay, have you? No. Okay, fantastic book, and actually buy it for people like Clink, because it's very, <laughs> it's actually a, 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 an intellectual economist. He's a professor at, um, I think, London School of Economics. Um, uh, but John Kay's book, Obliquity, is bizarrely an academic economist really writing in defense of creativity, because his argument is that many, many big goals are actually best pursued obliquely. In other words, the best way to become a large, profitable company is not narrowly to pursue short term profit. It's to pursue something tangential to that and then to make money as a natural consequence of what you're pursuing. Mm. And yeah. he argues that the shareholder value movement by basically denying obliquity, by insisting that the only acceptable thing is for everybody in a company directly to pursue shareholder enrichment, um, actually, in a sense, collapses under the weight of its own contradictions. Um, and so that, that, that would be a fantastic book for any B Corp to read, actually. Um, the other thing I think you benefit from hugely when you, you know, when you are a B Corp with a mission is the principal benefit may not actually be in terms of the consumer marketplace, but in terms of the labor marketplace, which is you get better people working for you for less, for longer and yep. with a far, far greater sense of commitment. Do you, there is a downside, which I ought to, I ought to qualify this with which is that sometimes organizations which are organized around um what you might call altruistic ends can become hugely political you know there is one thing to the profit motive which is it often forces people to bury their differences because ultimately they work out that together they will make more money than they will if they if they factionalize you know, there are quite famous businesses which are run by people who actually don't get on very well on a personal level, but they, they simply bury the hatchet in the pursuit of uh, in, 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 in the in the pursuit of profit and growth. Do you there's, there's a wonderful phrase in the church, which is that, that uh, the devil enters the church through the belfry and through the kitchen. And it sounds a very strange phrase, but the idea is that the people bell ringers and cooks are sort of volunteers. 
and that volunteers can be actually more political and much more difficult to manage than people who simply have a commercial motivation. Do, do you occasionally get involved in something where one person will become absolutely you know, politicised around, I don't know, the supplier of a wrapper or something, and it becomes harder to manage the organisation because of that? Or are you still at the scale where it's all fairly amicable? Yeah, I, to be honest, I don't think we have that. No, we have such a clear mission and purpose. We have really clear values. We recruit against those values and everybody is really passionate, not only about the mission that we're trying to achieve and the impact we're making in West Africa, but passionate about being a Tony and being part of this, this yeah. culture. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't have any examples of where things have got overly politicised or, or become difficult. It, um, it currently feels like a really great uh, place to work where everybody is, yeah, united behind the, the goal. Because that, I mean, undoubtedly, you know, as we, I mean, one of the great mistakes of the shareholder value movement was that it ignored employee value for mm -hmm. about 20 years uh, on the assumption that employees were kind of infinitely replaceable and available in abundance. And they've suddenly discovered, uh, you know, as with, for example, the catering and the airline industry, they've suddenly discovered this isn't quite the case. Um, and so having having a very clear sense of employee motivation, because let's be absolutely candid, OK, I don't get out of bed in the morning to enrich the WPP shareholders. You know, I'm, I'm not totally indifferent to their lot, but it would be, you know, it's it, it's except for about five people at the very top. The idea that creating shareholder value is actually motivating is you know fairly obvious nonsense. And so one great advantage I think you'll enjoy is I don't think you'll have a shortage of high quality. You probably find that when you recruit, you have mm -hmm. no shortage of high quality people who are eager to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Do you still do you still employ from Manchester? I'm a big fan. I had a, um, a contemporary of mine went to Manchester Business School, as you did. And um, I was always impressed, actually, because it always struck me as uh, actually Manchester Business School kind of uh, embodied some of those virtues of old Manchester capitalism. Uh, mm -hmm. do, do you still have an affection for your old alma mater there? Because you're at the university and at the business school, weren't you? Some yes, school. yeah, Manchester Business School. You know what? I had the best best years in, in Manchester, but in terms of business school, it was the year I spent um, in America at the University of Southern California that was actually my biggest kind of proper education business. I, there's something, there's a lot to be said for learning the theory and writing the papers and the sources and, and on all of that um, from the English system, but in America, it's so much more practical. That's where I learned all my presentation skills, all my team working skills how to, um, you know, write papers, work with external businesses. Like that's where I got my real practical education. So I'd say that was the, the best year I spent during my, uh, my degree. I didn't realise that. So, so you, you, you effectively, it was a two-year degree, presumably, was it the... Um, it was four. So four, three at four. Manchester, one in America, yeah. Well, I, my goodness, okay. But one year was spelled at the USC. And it's very interesting you mentioned that, because one thing I always notice, and a little bit of it, I think, with Americans, comes from having show and tell. Mm -hmm. in their in their grade schools you know but americans naturally tend to be pretty good presenters the thing that the thing i always find painful watching the dragon's den is the number of times you have someone who has a pretty good idea but they have no idea how to tell the story mm -hmm. and one thing i noticed that americans something about the american education system you know, we, uh, the American education system is widely derided 
But one thing it does seem to produce is people who can effectively, you know, create a spiel around something in a way that's both clear, you know, clear, sequential and convincing in a way that a lot of Brits seem to be remarkably bad at doing. And of course, essay writing is the academic act of essay writing is not great training for that because you don't have the luxury of 15 minutes and, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in the business world or having four days to craft immaculate prose most of the time. Yeah. So, no, I, 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 and, and what did what you did you work within businesses in California as well? Or was it? We did a few like some of our, our classes were things um, like working with we worked with um, Habitat for Humanity on a project. I got to analyze the L.A. Fire Department as part of a course called Designing and Leading Teams. You did your MBTI profile, you formed together as a team, you analyzed them, wrote a paper on them. And then my uh, innovation MPD um, professor was head of MPD at Mattel working on Barbie. So wow. real people working in the real world that were then coming and giving us their, their knowledge. And my, one of my favorite classes was every week we would get a different case to read and then we would simply debate it in the class for for an hour and a half with everybody so yeah just so much more practical um and it suited me better than just sitting reading endless books and writing endless essays yeah that's interesting i mean funny enough fire departments are, and police departments are actually very interesting areas of study aren't they because mm -hmm. you have you know there, there, there's i suppose actually to a fire department to a police departments there are elements where you can gain economies of scale by centralizing them eg i mean in, in police departments forensics would be an obvious case but there's a certain component of policing which has to be localized and to consist of smaller teams simply because there are large elements of policing which you can't scale up i mean one of the things you have is that you know uh, that there's a particular optimization of team size where people feel a genuine sense of commitment to each other and that can break down but also there's local knowledge which is you know at some level the attempts to scale policing beyond a certain level um, collapse. So there are quite a lot of lessons from both fire departments and police departments, which can be transferred to wider businesses. Do you have anything interesting in in, in um, Tony's in terms of how you how you're structured? Uh, does a does being a B Corp give you a certain freedom not to be structured overwhelmingly just around financial reporting needs? Yeah, we've got a really flat hierarchy. So obviously, yeah. we do have a, like a team of chiefs and then we have our country managers and then you know we have our, our teams within the market um but we've actually just spent two days away as our, our uk team because we've grown i think we tripled in the last couple of years so we were away for a couple of days literally looking at this you know what kind of team are we what norms do we have who do we want to be and one of the things we talked about was having a really accessible hierarchy there's no private offices you know there's no need to feel that you can't call the ceo if you you want to um, and that just creates a really democratic, um, comfortable place for everybody to, to work in and feel that their voice is heard. One of our values is outspoken, and that absolutely is lived and breathed by every single person in the uh, the organisation, feeling they can put their hand up at any time, contribute in meetings, bring their ideas to the table. Um, so that makes it, uh, yeah, just a really supportive um, and open team culture, I think. And there's probably a little bit of this has been inherited from the Netherlands, hasn't it? Because Dutch Dutch company culture is, I mean, I, I don't think the Netherlands is quite as flat as outsiders imagine it is. I, I think that's true of Scandinavia as well. We tend to imagine these places as entirely classless, egalitarian and democratic. And I'm not sure that's totally true. Um, uh, but nonetheless, there is a kind of, uh, you know, uh, 
Uh, I suppose there, there are elements of Dutch culture, aren't there, which are highly distinctive. They probably are a little more egalitarian. Um, and direct. And, and incredibly, <laughs> <To the point. laughs> incredibly terrifyingly direct. Yeah, yeah. So, that, I, mean, that, I mean, that must be, uh, there's that wonderful, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it, the wonderful guide for, you know, what an Englishman says, what a Dutchman hears, what the Englishman really means. And yeah. so, you know, there, there's that wonderful little digest. I think it's actually in my book, if anybody wants to see it, they don't have to buy the book thing, you know. But, um, uh, you know, the, the, the English art tend to be incredibly oblique. And that Dutch directness must be actually quite useful at times. Oh, it's great. Get yeah. straight to the point. But there's something about everybody that works for Tony's where it's still done in such a, a lovely way. So I actually, yeah, when I started working for Tony's originally, I didn't know if the culture was Dutch or was it the Tony's culture. And now I've realised it's a bit of both. Um, and yeah, you're right. That has definitely kind of translated into the other markets as, as we've grown. Um, but yeah, I think the directness just saves us a lot of time. Tell me finally about the indie bars, because they're only available. You have these bars which are only available to select retailers. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Independent retailers, like I said at the start, you know, it's how we built the business in the UK. Yes. And they're incredibly important to us. They helped us build the brand from scratch. Um, and to this day, you know, have some of the best displays and visibility for the brand. But, you know, to achieve our mission, we have to become bigger, more credible um, and, uh, and ultimately a big chocolate brand. So the biggest chocolate companies take us seriously and give us a seat at the table so we can, you know, be part of the conversation to fix the broken industry. So we can't do that if we're only stocked in those independent stores. Uh, we have to be next to the big guys on on the big supermarket shelves. So we'll continue to build our grocery distribution, but we still want to offer the independence and, and non-grocery store something unique and a, and a point of difference. So since launch, we've always had you know, special bars that you can only find in those smaller stores. And we shout about them on our social media and our emails to our Choco fans and, and serious friends. Um, and the last two bars, yeah, launched last month and are selling really well. And then those resellers feel special and they actually shout about it on their channels so and act as a marketing it, channel It's for your us. way of kind of almost thanking the independent retailers for getting you your start and and giving them something because they, you know they can't always compete on price for example with the you know the multiples so it's also it's also a way in which you give them something which they really cherish which is the ability to sell something that isn't more widely available so any exactly. deli of course any deli absolutely loves something like that i think a genius idea now i've got to ask plans for the future do you have plans to move into ice cream drinking chocolate other cocoa based products or would you do something completely oblique and off the wall and take some other campaign in terms of the food chain and uh, and look to intervene there? Um, we are going to stick with chocolate for the foreseeable. Yep. Um, there is a lot to do in the cocoa industry, and we know that the chocolate and the chocolate products is is what is getting us, uh, you know, that brand and, and issue awareness. And we've got massive ambitions. We want to be a top five chocolate bar in the UK in the next five years. So that would be the same size as Lint. Um, so I guess for the next five years, you will see us continually recruiting new Choco fans, shouting really loudly about the the chocolate industry and disrupting it from within um, and ultimately we want to put as much pressure as possible through our campaigns through our chocolate through our retailers through lobbying for legislation as well to put pressure on the big chocolate companies to adopt our five sourcing principles and really address that root cause of illegal labor in the, uh, the chocolate industry so yeah you can expect more yummy products more activist campaigns and, and more campaigning for change from us in the near future well, that's been absolutely fascinating. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. 
That's all for this episode of On Brand. The podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, just visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F Insight, all one word, .com. Uh, the series is produced and, as ever, expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. Make sure you receive the next episode. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, just tweak the algorithm by giving us a like. I'm not quite sure what the point of a like is, um, uh, but it certainly helps the algorithm and uh, makes everybody here very, very happy. So thank you very much for listening. And Nicola, once again, um, uh, I will be um, uh, pass on my congratulations to Clink. Very impressed by his single name, by the way. And um, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 